A recent U.S. Supreme Court decision cites the work of a South Dakota legal scholar. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, June 23rd, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome Professor Frank Pomersheim to the program. We'll talk about the role sovereignty plays in the conversation about child welfare. We meet musician Arlinda Peacock ahead of her visit to the Levitt. That's coming a bit later in the hour. But first, Representative Will Mortensen talks higher ed. And Chris Madsen contemplates a state dish for South Dakota. And no, we don't mean the state nosh of Chislik. This is different. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The South Dakota Board of Regents met this week at Dakota State University in Madison. Topics included graduation rates and tuition at our colleges and universities. Representative Will Mortensen is experienced in education policy. He's currently majority leader for the State House of Representatives, and he spoke with SDPB's Lee Sturbinger about lawmakers' role at the most recent Board of Regents gathering. You know, college affordability is something that I got to give credit to uh, Senator Casey Crabtree, who's the leader over in the Senate. He and I have both identified that as a, a priority of our caucuses and, and of us. But, you know, the, the reason that's so importantly is that we look across at some of the biggest problems facing our state is, do we have enough teachers to teach our kids? Do we have enough health care providers to take care of us when we're sick or when we're, we're getting older? Uh, do we have enough folks who know how to um, wield a hammer, build the designs to, to build buildings around us. But all of those keep coming back to these workforce challenges. And if we can't keep young people here uh, who are talented and ready to, you know, uh, get to work, start a family, um, or, or bring in young people from other places, we're going to be in a world of hurt. And the number one policy lever, really, that we have in peer to, to try to affect that is to have them come into our uh, colleges, whether that's a tech college or university system. If we can make our state uh, the cheapest place to go to college, hopefully we'll get kids jumping across the border um, or staying home at higher rates. Uh, I think the statistic is that if a kid from South Dakota goes to one of our universities, they stay seven uh, or eight and ten times. If somebody comes over from out of state into here, one out of three times they stay here. And that's really how we, we build a better, more prosperous, better educated, healthier state. And so we've really focused on that. I'm proud that we've been able to make good strides on affordability in partnering with the regents the last three years. I hope we can keep it up. Uh, you said that that the days of the tuition freeze might be over. Could you talk a little bit about why that might be? Yeah, I'm hopeful that, that we, we can freeze tuition. One thing about it is that... Um, in the last three years, we have had massive growth in revenue, some of that due to inflation, some of it due to natural economic growth. Uh, but from the legislative side, a lot of the reasons we've had a lot of one-time money available and ongoing money is that, frankly, we're a conservative bunch in that legislature. I mean, Mike, I represent 63 Republicans, and these are cautious conservative people. And so when we go to set revenue estimates... We don't just assume the good times will go on forever. We try to set them in a grounded way, and if we make an error, we make an error that leads to us having a cushion and not needing to make cuts. And so um, as we look ahead to next year, you know, I, I just see the economic outlook 
normalizing. We've once again been pretty conservative in our revenue estimate. And if that comes to fruition, I think we estimated uh, or projected that there would be 3.8% growth next year. You know, that, that just doesn't lead to hundreds of millions of dollars of excess revenue like we've seen in the last few years. Now, does that mean we're not going to take care of our core priorities? No, we are going to take care of education. We are going to take care of nursing homes and, and state employees. Uh, whether we can get another tuition freeze or something else to, to bend the cost curve on college affordability is a matter of priorities, and, and it's certainly going to remain a priority of mine. So the um, state's graduation rate at our universities is ho- hovering around 47 to 59 percent, depending on which data you look at. Um, obviously, that was the focus of a letter from uh, Governor Nome to the Board of Regents recently. Um, I wanted to get your take on something that Regents President Tim Rave said, which was he talked about one way to improve graduation rates by upping entrance requirements to get into some of our university schools, uh, something like ACT scores, uh, upping that, that requirement to, to enter. And I wanted to ask you, how do you see the role of our regental system? You know, is it to educate our students in a post-secondary uh, setting, or is it to um, advance some of those metrics like uh, graduation rates that would make our institutions look a little more elite on the national scale? This is one of my favorite topics, honestly, to think and talk and work on, Lee. This is something that uh, when I worked for Governor Dennis Dugard, I did education policy. And back then, our graduation rate, and the standard way that they calculate that is graduation within six years. And so the regions are in the high 50s now. Uh, back when I was working for Governor Dugard, they were in the mid-50s. I mean, they they moved the needle by uh, 5% to the good in the last 10 years. But, you know, this isn't a new issue. It's something that I've been thinking about. You know, back then we moved from 128 credits to graduate to 120. Um, and and I think that bore some fruit in, in helping to get kids a credential. But, you know, when, when it comes to this, it's not um, a, a one-factor analysis. I think it's really important to remember what a strong technical college system we've got in this state and that we need to think of those as compliments. I also think the days of there's one way to be successful in this world, and that's to go get a college degree and go wear a suit to work. And I just don't think that's the case. I don't know that it ever was. But I think people's eyes are being opened now to um, the ability to you know, go spend two years at one of our very fine technical colleges, earn a degree that's got a family-sustaining wage, I mean, something that you really can, can build a household around uh, and that we can be proud of. And so, you know, helping kids to identify and know all the options they've got in front of them is uh, is a big job, and it's something that we rely on high school counselors to do and that we rely on parents to do principally. I mean, that's the number one actor in that space. Uh, and I think my job in the legislature is to make sure that we're giving both as technical colleges and the regions all the tools that they need to continue to offer robust and and successful education outcomes to those kids and at a price they can afford. I mean, I just, it can't be that 5% of the country gets to go to school and come out of there without debt and everybody else is $50,000 in debt when you're 22 years old. And by the way, if you, you know, didn't graduate college, now you're 20, uh, you've got $30,000 in debt and no degree to show for it. That's not serving that kid. And so to the degree to which we can make 
those choices clearer. We can offer these um, options and that kids can select whichever among those options fits them best. I think that's really our duty on this. And so it's a terribly complicated policy area and one that it's maybe easy to, to throw a stone at, um, much harder to move the needle. I mean, there's um, uh, for every hundred kids that leave school after only three years, there's a hundred different reasons for that. And it can be family and it can be uh, work and it can be, um, you know, which school, you know, if you transfer, you're counted as a dropout. And so it's not necessarily that all these kids have failing outcomes or something. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's a worthy topic to work on. And it's something that, you know, uh, Senator Crabtree and I went up and talked to the regents and just told them with our handout, we're ready to partner with you on it. I mean, we don't think you're broken, but that doesn't mean we can't make you better. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, yesterday we went around the world in search of food, history, and the meaning of home with the author of the book, National Dish. Today, we just stay home. I asked food writer and award-winning chef Chris Madsen to ponder what South Dakota's state dish might be. Madsen is an attorney and a former South Dakota state legislator. He last joined our show to talk about his chapter in the book, City of Hustle, where he wrote about restaurant culture in Sioux Falls. Chris Madsen stopped by the studio for this conversation. Tell me a little bit about the framework that you used to think about what the dishes would be. Well, it's not easy when you think about South Dakota. I mean, we've got a great bounty of things here when you think of the wildlife and the, the lakes and the rivers and the, the wild game and pheasants and all of those things. But you know, South Dakota doesn't have natural blessings like South Louisiana or the coastal waters of Maine. There's no dish that immediately it, you can so easily associate, um, like crawfish and crawfish boils in Cajun country or something A good lobster like roll. Yeah. A lobster roll <laughs> at a shack in Maine, exactly, that kind of thing. It, it doesn't just jump out with you. And a lot of the things that, that we have here, you know, we talk about pheasants and walleye and that sort. They were all introduced. Somebody brought those here, um, and they've done very well, and they attract lots of visitors to the state and give us all lots of fun things to do, but not native. So is there really a taste of the land? I don't know. <laughs> you also avoided, I think, and we're going to put this uh, up on our website at sdpb.org slash news. You'll be able to read Chris's column for yourself and share it and comment on it. Heaven help you and people comment on <laughs> the things that you think you got wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Developed a thick skin over the years. And uh, you avoided some of the obvious. I may have rejected some of you the obvious. You <laughs> rejected some of the obvious. You did not pick, for example, Chislik. Chislik's 15 minutes of fame is probably over or waning at a minimum. Um, Chislik's a great thing. Everybody loves it. But really, come on, it's, it's meat on a stick. Um, it, it's wonderful to eat. I think it's the world's best bar food. It goes great with a cold beer. You get an argument with every serving because the person <laughs> next to you can argue it's not lamb or it's not mutton or it's beef or it's grilled instead of fried or there's vegetables with it or you're supposed to put the Cavender's Greek seasoning on it or whatever. So every, every bit is tasty, fun, goes well with beer and starts arguments. Great bar food. That's the definition of bar food right there. But that's not really a dish. I think we can do better than meat on a stick. 
And you did not pick the ubiquitous pickle and beer or olives and beer. Right. Pickle and Same pick, reason? Same reason. <laughs> we Look, fun. Uh, charge of electrolytes with your, with your <laughs> macro brew in your cold mug. That's great. But uh, again, not really a dish. And look, we can do better than that. Do I want to wear a t-shirt that says, yes, I'm from pickle beer land? No. <laughs> and a matter of fact, there's suggestions in the column about what maybe we can do with those. Right. So a little uh, teaser for the reading. All right. Well, let's talk about dish number one. We have two dishes and an honorable mention. Dish number one, pheasant and rice. Right. The dishes that I picked, it really ultimately tied back to the people. I mean, if there's one thing in South Dakota, I think food ties you to people, not necessarily food. We all need it, but at best, it really gives you a, a connection to the people in the area and the place. And South Dakotans have always had to be very good at making the very best out of what they've got, where they are. And as a matter of fact, that was very true before this area was even known as South Dakota. Think of, think of what the natives were able to do with what they had on hand. And I mean, they literally lived in, on, and off of it period. Amazing. And I, I think pheasant with that rice and a can of cream of mushroom soup stirred <laughs> together is, is making the best of what you can do. Pheasant can be hard to shoot. They can be hard to bring home in the, in the game bag. But once they're there, they can be even harder to deal with. And I'm not talking about just cleaning them. Yeah. But it, cooking a pheasant takes some work. And it's, uh, they're a tough bird. They, they run around, they eat lean diets. Apparently this kind of thing is very good for you and makes for a lean, tough critter. <laughs> but that's just it. You've got a lean, tough critter, and lean, tough critters are equal tough-to-cook critter. How do you make it good? How do you make it comfort food good? Well, I think you make it comfort good food with that can of um, <laughs> fat and salt that, that says cream of mushroom on the front of it that you, you, know, you kind of stir together with whatever seasonings your family is used to and likes and then and sort of finds fun and traditional. And you put that in the oven for a long time and let it work slowly and eventually it all tenders up the same way a, you know, a pork shoulder does on a, on a smoker for a long period of time. You give it a low, slow treatment and the, the tough fibers start to break down, it gets tender. And you've got that dish that you probably had at grandma's at some point. You may have had every fall um, you probably figured out how to make it if you ever pheasant hunted. Now you've got six pheasants you need to do something with. Uh, it's a, it's, I think that's a flavor that we can all get in touch with, whether you're in hot springs or in, uh, in Sisseton. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, because I was a little surprised to see cream of mushroom soup even mentioned in a Chris Madsen column because you are a foodie and are capable of putting things together with far different but yet, even you have an affection for a well-placed can of cream of mushroom soup. <laughs> I would not make that dish that way because that, that okay. ingredient doesn't enter my house. And then, <laughs> that's actually a hard stop with me. But in, it, it's, a, it's a call a spade a spade deal. That's here to stay in South Dakota. Matter of fact, you can go to any grocery store in the fall, and if you had a Rip Van Winkle nap and woke up and walked through a grocery store, and there's an end cap full of <laughs> cream of mushroom soup, it's hunting season in South Dakota. <laughs> Dish number two. 
Dish number two, I think we went back a little bit on, and, and uh, again, making the most out of what you've got on hand. And I, I went with fry bread and choke cherry wojapi. And I, because I think this really also, maybe even more than, than pheasant and wild rice casserole, shows what a determined person can do with what they've got on hand. I, I think fry bread's really interesting. First of all, it's, it's absolutely delicious. Um, you see it a lot kind of associated with, uh, with native culture. You expect to, to kind of find it at the, at the powwows and the rodeos and to get it from the stand or maybe a, a relative made it. And, you know, I, I'm not an expert in indigenous peoples by any means, but I'm kind of observant enough to know that the Lakota culture here is not one of row farmers and grain millers, which suggests to me that my, my studies about the ingredients in fry bread, that was probably commodity ration box from the U.S. government way back when for however long, and, and a group of people who figured out how to take that and survive off of it, and not only survive off of it, but make it good. And then to take something like choke cherries, somewhat abundant, you've got to find them. You had to go try them. When they're good, you have to fight the birds to get them. <laughs> but if you know how to treat them right, and you're willing to put in the time and the work to pick them and process them and treat them right, you'll get this marvelous sort of jam that makes for a perfect dip for a warm piece of fry bread. And mm. I think I think that's a taste of South Dakota. Maybe not as familiar as as number one, or at least as familiar to as many people. But I think that kind of shows you what kind of what kind of things we have here and what kind of people we have here that can make the best of what they've got. And back to your first point about, you know, some people are not going to let fry bread in their house because of its origins as a, a commodity property, and they're really going back to more traditional native food. There is a comfort in the things that we all grew up with that every once in a while you want to go back home to your fry bread or your green mushroom soup. Probably not the kind of thing you want to be eating every day. It's probably right. not a three-meal-a-day sort of health food, but it's a comfort food just like the cream of mushroom. Yeah. All right, yeah. there is an honorable mention here. Uh, honorable mention. And maybe, <laughs> and maybe the first uh, in-the-moment yeah. real estate development tip. Go pick up somebody who's been gone for a long time, moved away in high school, moved away in college, haven't seen them since they got married 20 years ago. Pick them up at the airport, whether you're in Watertown or Aberdeen or Sioux Falls or Rapid City or Pier, major airport. The first thing they're going to want, even if you're driving to Grandma's house for Thanksgiving dinner, is to drive through Taco John's <laughs> and to get some potato lays with some of that never-gets-hard-dipping nacho sauce. With or without anything else, you're stopping at Taco John's. And the real estate investment tip is to build a Taco John's adjacent to every major airport in the state and make a killing. It'll be perfect. Do you know how many times I've come home from the airport and driven this is not an endorsement for Taco Downs. Taco Downs did not pay us, nor are they underwriters of South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But let's be real, people. That's, We've all done it. <laughs> and, and that's the way people really eat, and that's what people really eat. And it's pretty darn good every once in a while. What are you eating this weekend? Because it's not anything that's on this list. Well, I don't know. I'm going to go see if the, uh, if the crazy Cajuns make it up from South Louisiana. Uh, there's a group 
um, it's like A&A seafood sales or something that make their way up the, the interstate every once in a while with a load of things. And I'm going to see if I can't lay into some crawfish and maybe boil a few of those and and play like I'm somewhere else for, <laughs> for a couple hours. How will you serve that? <clears throat> with lots of cold beer. <laughs> Chris Madsen, thank you so much for helping us uh, identify our South Dakota dish. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. It'll be a pleasure. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, last week we brought you news and conversations about the U.S. Supreme Court decision to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. We also discussed a concurrence written by Justice Gorsuch discussing the complex relationships between tribes, colonies, states, and federal governments. We're going to take that conversation a bit further now because in his concurrence, the justice cited approvingly the legal writings of Frank Palmersheim. Professor Palmersheim taught at the University of South Dakota School of Law. He has written extensively in the field of Indian law, and that includes books, articles, and legal opinions, and he served on a number of tribal appellate courts, including as Chief Justice for the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Court of Appeals and Associate Justice for the Rosebud Sioux Supreme Court, and he is with me in the studio now. Professor Palmerschein, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, um, Lori. This uh, decision that came down was uh, groundbreaking for a lot of people, but really, in, in some ways, nothing changed per se, or did it? What do you see as the significance of this decision, this most recent decision? Well, the most immediate significance is <clears throat> that by a 7-2 to two majority, which I don't think anyone really anticipated, the court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act as constitutional, a huge, a huge affirmance of the importance of the Indian Child Welfare Act. I think a lot of people in Indian country, uh, <clears throat> both people who work in the field, scholars, lawyers, were worried that the court seemed like it might want to go in the opposite direction and declare it unconstitutional. So for it to be declared constitutional, by a stunning majority of seven to two, I think has brought a lot of uh, <clears throat> good feelings throughout Indian country and people who work in the context of the Indian Child Welfare Act. The concurrence written by Neil Gorsuch um, was also a way I I thought since it was some of that um, some of his thinking on this was was new to me and I was curious about it. Also laid out a lot of things about why this system is the way it is. Um, going back to the U.S. Constitution and treaties with the tribes, he cited your work in that concurrence. Tell me a little bit about how you see the concurrence and, and, and how it kind of lands with you. Well, I think it's, it's very powerful. I, I think the importance of Justice Gorsuch is, in, in the context of Indian law mm -hmm. uh, on the Supreme Court, I, I think he's the main person. And I think he brings three particular skills that People look to see how he's going to think and vote and write. One, he's done a lot of work when he was on 10th Circuit in Indian law, so he's very knowledgeable about the field. I would say he's the most knowledgeable person on the court uh, about Indian law in general, one. Two, he's an excellent writer. You've just read his concurrence. I think he, as a non-lawyer, you would be struck by how well it's written. And even though it's subjective, when you react to someone's style, he, he's writing with a lot of, which is a compliment from my point of view, with passion and insight. Mm -hmm. 
And thirdly, he goes back to the beginning. He believes fervently, and I would tend to agree with him, that in the structure of the Constitution is an ongoing commitment by the federal government to respect tribal sovereignty and tribal self-governance and to work with and where necessary to protect, protect tribes from improper incursions by the state or personal individuals. So I think he brings those three characters together and uh, <clears throat> I think he's going to be or is kind of recognized as the person uh, <clears throat> that can lead the way in Indian law jurisprudence. I, I don't know a lot of his work outside of Indian law. He has a reputation of being also fairly conservative. And, and so there's kind of an interesting kind of different strains in his work, apparently. But in Indian law, he's the man. I read an article that was looking at those different strains and finding that the commonality in this author was an opinion piece, but they were suggesting that you know, what he is known for is going back to the Constitution and being as, cleaving as close to it as humanly possible. And that makes for some uh, modern, what we might think are contradictions. I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but people are talking about about that, his, um, you know, how his decisions are sort of, sort of revealing who he is as a justice. Um, you came, if you don't mind... <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you're from New York. You were a young man who came out to uh, reservation to Indian country and began work at Sintagleska. Is that, do I remember that yes. correctly? Uh, you know, teaching law. What were some of the impressions that you got at that time that you still remember today after all these years in South Dakota and the University of South Dakota teaching? Um, this was a whole new world to you at the time. Uh, it was, <clears throat> but it was also an amazing and significant grounding for the rest of my professional and personal life that on the reservation, Rosebud in particular, when I arrived in 1973, I was amazingly surprised about how much law was just part of ordinary conversation, not by professionals, but by ordinary people. And the people that I was closest to at Rosebud emphasized to me as I was beginning my teaching and writing career uh, the importance of treaties, the importance of the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, in particular to Lakota people. It's like the cornerstone. And at that time, in 1973, not many people were saying that in professional literature, etc. That was kind of a feeling that treaties were kind of receding into the background and their importance. And my teachers, who were just like community leaders and stuff, just said, Frank, you have to know about the treaty. And if you don't, you won't be able to do your work to its fullest while you're here. And so my teachers were ordinary community leaders, people grounded in the treaty. They probably had relatives who signed the Fort Lamry Treaty of 1868. So my education was that treaties are primary, not secondary, but they're primary. And why are they primary? They're not only primary for their substance, but that they show a mutual respect between two sovereigns. And for Lakota people, that respect, that mutuality continues, even though the federal government has been, I would say, and this is a generous assessment, rather careless in its side of the bargain. And that surfaces a little bit in the opinion. And also the way <clears throat> Justice Gorsuch talks about it, he, he talks about in the front part of his opinion that there were over 100 treaties entered into by the United States and various Indian tribes, including many tribes in South Dakota, 
that guaranteed the right to education and a duty to protect Indian children. So for Justice Gorsuch, he sees that commitment to education of Indian children and as part of that, the protection of Indian children grounded in the treaty and what also became the trust responsibility. So for Justice Gorsuch, that's the, the grounding, that's the beginning. And then he talks about how he understands the Indian Commerce Clause. Now, it's fascinating in the opinion, not, not to just us folks that read this stuff, but you always hear about originalism. You know, uh, that's Justice Thomas's uh, rallying point that the only way really to interpret the Constitution is what did it mean originally when it was adopted by the founding fathers? What's fascinating in this opinion is that how Justice Gorsuch understands that originalism, what was the understanding of the Constitution and the federal government and tribes at the beginning, he has one view and a diametrically opposed view on the same issue of originalism by Justice Thomas, two, di two different views. And to me, that, that's revealing in that originalism doesn't have one answer. I think oftentimes people who put that out there say there is only one way to understand what the beginnings of the Constitution actually say, and we just have to follow that. But this is a perfect example. At the very beginning, uh, there, there's a difference of opinion. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of scholars will look at those two opinions to look at Justice Thomas's dissent and his view of originalism in the context leading to the Indian Child Welfare Act. Diametrically kind of different takes. You can see this in the dissent, and I've heard it from people in South Dakota who, and, and this is what this case was all about, where the, the dissenting justices said, you know, when it comes to the well-being of children, that supersedes everything. And I've had people ask me, well, what about the children who are doing much better with their families and we don't want the tribe to have precedence? Uh, we don't want them to necessarily go back to their family members because that would be a very bad situation for them. They're kind of wrestling with this whole idea of what is best for the children in the context of this huge Indian Child <laughs> Welfare Act. What would you say to people who um, were more likely to find solace in the dissenting opinion about what this means in a contemporary setting? Well, first of all, you have to have, I believe, like a more nuanced understanding of the Indian Child Welfare Act than is generally available. Because okay. it's generally said it's, it's all for Indians, it favors Indians, you know, children can only be placed with Indian families. And that is like globally, like maybe true, but on the ground, it's not true. There are provisions in the Indian Child Warfare, even in the placement of Indian ch children, if, like if there's good cause to the contrary, uh, the preferences don't have to be followed. And on the ground, I mean, I've seen cases uh, where the tribe hears from, you know, the biological parents and they want their child placed with a non-Indian family and it's a, you know, it's a good non-Indian family. And, and in that context, a good non-Indian family is not only what we would normally think of a good family, but a family that's committed to raising a Native child with an understanding of who that Native child is, that that is a Native child, and he or she is entitled to know their 
rootedness, their background. So I think on the ground, and I've seen this in actual cases, it's like, yeah, it it can actually work. There was a case, uh, the first case involving the Indian Child Welfare Act that went to the Supreme Court, a case called Mississippi Band of Chocta versus Holyfield. And it involved a case where uh, did the tribal court have jurisdiction or the tribal mother, a member of the tribe, she consciously left the reservation to give birth to her twins off the reservation in the hopes that the state court would then have jurisdiction because she wanted her twins placed with a particular uh, non-Native family. And this case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, uh, despite her giving birth technically off the reservation, her children, these twins, were domiciliaries of the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Reservation, and the tribal court had exclusive jurisdiction. And I would, when I used to teach this to my students, and I would say, like, well, you know, the tribe's now going to decide. They've won at the Supreme Court. What do you think is going to happen to these twins? And almost uniformly, my students will say, those twins are going to wind up with an Indian family. And you know what actually happened in the case? The tribe decided that the best placement for these twins was with this non native, non-Indian family. And so the Holyfields got to raise these twins. And to me, it's like a revealing case uh, 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 about uh, how cases actually work on the ground. Yes, it's important who has jurisdiction, but I think uh, the stereotype that if the tribal court has jurisdiction, they're just going to favor Indians. And my own experience, and as you indicated in your introduction, I've am on several tribal, but that's just not true in reality. I I think stereotypes become very, very dangerous in this area. So there's plenty of room, and tribal judges are very open to hearing why um, the Native mothers and fathers want, in a particular case, that their child be placed either in foster care or even adopted by a non-Native family. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. Because maybe it's my age, Lori, but I, I get more and more suspicious of very large abstractions. Yeah. And I think the Indian Child Welfare Act lends itself to certain stereotypes, negative stereotypes, about how uh, tribes and tribal courts will carry out their responsibilities. Perhaps we should all be a little more uh, skeptical of large abstractions. <laughs> Professor Frank Palmersheim, it is a, a delight to talk to you. Um, thank you for stopping by. We hope to have you back again. Looking forward to it. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Our next guest is a South Dakota indie soul, R&B, and rap musician. Arlinda Peacock is on a journey to heal and grow through music. And she is with me now in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls, ahead of her performance tonight at the Levitt. Arlinda, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy you could stop by because your music is kind of new to me and I'm already in love with it. How long oh. have you been performing in the South Dakota area? Like, you know, how long have you been out there as a musician, as it were? Mm, I would say about five, six years. How'd you get your start? 
Um, I've been playing music by myself for quite some time since I was a little kid. And then I used to go to what's called ciphers where we we would all get in a circle and freestyle and um, rap and things like that. So I decided like, oh, I kind of want to start performing live. So that's how it all started. And yeah. here I am now. What kind of community? Because I think that's just a big jump from, mm-hmm. you know, your bedroom and then like a circle of friends and then uh, the Levitt stage. Mm-hmm. You know? how, what kind of support do did you get and do young artists need to sort of have just the confidence to step up to the mic? Well, I think community is a huge thing, and a lot of my friends are artists or in the scene. Um, I work part-time at a restaurant bar downtown serving weddings, and I also host an open mic there. And just being with people that support that kind of outlet has helped me, too. Just everyone has been so supportive, and a lot of people are just looking at for somebody to kind of help them get going or a friend or a listening ear. And there are a lot of that type of connection within this community. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of healing and growth. How does music, it's about more than just entertaining an audience for you. It's also about a personal journey. Well, I was adopted at birth and my childhood was not good. I grew up in the foster care system And one thing that, you know, always helped me was music. Um, I remember when I was younger, just going through some of those dark times and, you know, being locked away or just uh, abuse type situations. And music was something that always helped me express my imagination and kind of get my anger out. And as I grew older in life and trying to cope with some of that trauma, music is such a great way for you to express yourself and get some of that rage out and I don't know I've cried many times while singing songs and I think music just has a huge connection with people and healing yeah I'm not a therapist but I have read and learned through the work that I do here as a journalist that you hold that stuff in Mm -hmm. your physical body Mm -hmm. and then there can be ways to sort of release that and so you're doing that through performance and music Mm -hmm. do you feel it happening as it's happening yes there's been times where I felt myself wanting to cry on stage because I'm like I can see the people I can see that they're touched I feel safe I always feel safe you know I'm not ashamed of the music I put out it's different it's not normal sometimes but I feel just so safe being able to express and getting those emotions out of my body yeah how do you think about genre do you care about it when um, we say oh she's a you know uh, there's a little folk there's a little uh, soul there's a little rap it's just it's just it's all everything peacock. yeah <laughs> I recently found out that sometimes they sing even a little bit of metal too it's so nice And one kind of interesting thing is I do like to improvise or freestyle a lot, just like some actors actors and actresses improvise. Sometimes there's a couple of songs I'll do live and I'll just do them on the spot and just kind of feel out the crowd, feel what I'm feeling and just spit it out. And that's something I've been doing probably my since I started playing music. (laughs) So when we go see you tonight on the stage... You've got a plan, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also it could be totally spontaneous. We don't, uh-huh. We're not really sure. So, I mean, I think that's <laughs> important for people to know because you can miss that as an audience goer to say, oh, this is something, now I'm in that space. Mm-hmm. And I'm in that space with the artist where 
where where she's going somewhere, where they're going somewhere. I get to go with them. Mm-hmm. Well, my brother is going to be performing with me tonight. I have yes. um, him playing guitar, one of my good friends playing bass, um, and then one of my other good friends playing drum. And my brother's very structured, so he helps me structure the set, make sure everything is set in stone, go smoothly, but I also are, am going to add some of my own creativeness and own expression within it as well. So. I love that. Uh-huh. I cannot wait. All right. Our Linda Peacock is tonight at the Levitt at the Shell. STPB live streams those Levitt performances mm-hmm. as well. So check out her music. Thanks so much yeah. for being here. Oh, also shout out to my brother, Bobby, my good friend, Anthony, my good friend, Stefan. I couldn't have done the show without them. Hey, guys, thank you for supporting Arlinda. Okay, if you started collecting music today, who are the artists that still will have impact for years to come? David Hersrud is helping listeners build their ultimate music library. And for this edition of Fresh Tracks, Hersrud and Larry Rohr talk about two talented and versatile performers. You brought up a very interesting idea a few weeks ago about refreshing what you call the ultimate music library. What I'm looking for, what's the music that you're going to be listening to 20, 30 years from now? So the criteria is is really quite simple. I will not pick a debut album. Okay. And I stay away from sophomore offerings. Musicians have years to musically prepare for that first album. And if it's a hit, quite often there is a tremendous amount of pressure to get that next album done mm. and out there. Let's get another one out there. The results, well, sometimes it works. Sometimes you no doubt heard the term one-hit wonders. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something very interesting about your first choice this week. And this is Caroline Polachek, who we talked about a few weeks ago. She might be a new archetype because you were telling us about Polachek having more command over her career. I know there's more than that, why Caroline Polachek is on the ultimate list. She started a band called Chairlift while still in college. When the band broke up, she kind of became a do-everything for people. Uh, she co-wrote and produced uh, music for Beyonce, Travis Scott, and others. She also was creating music for fashion designers, even going so far as ballet performances. The new album, Desire I Want to Turn Into You, has thus far received the highest score from reviewers this year. Welcome to my island. See the palm trees waving the wind. Welcome to my island. Hope you like me. You ain't leaving. There's a mix of cuts and there's really a kind of a smorgasbord of, of musical styles that she can take command of in the music that's included. It's, again, not down a single lane, a really an interesting variety that she's pulled into Desire I Want to Turn Into You. You know that you've got an artist who can do so many things and do them well. Bunny is a writer, satellite can find her, no sympathy. Bonnie is a writer, satellite can find her, no sympathy, ain't nothing for free. Bonnie is a writer, 
this album, Desire I Want to Turn Into You, is going to be a classic. It already is. There's another voice that we want to feature today, too, that and have you consider for that ultimate list. When I was listening to Joy Oladukin, what a wonderful, creative, precise voice. Joy Oladukin and Proof of Life. We're all What I like about it, this lady has an incredible grasp of coming up with music that is melodic. It's wonderful when you think, listen to it. I hate change, but I come of age, think I'm finally finding my way. Dance with chaos. Nigerian descent. Her music, I mean, really spans all kinds of genres, you know. Because of that, a lot of people want to work with her. She's collaborated with artists like Brandi Carlisle, Lucy Silvis, Jason Isbell. In fact, she's got a recent duet with Chris Stapleton that I really, really like. Very nice. Even if the world that we built falls at our feet, we used to ride where we're supposed to be Together through ups and the downs Dungeons and ivory towns Wrong We'll get things wrong She did a tiny desk concert for NPR that I thought was excellent and I would uh, recommend that people pull that up and take a look at it. She is, has become kind of a major draw at festivals, appearances at Bonnaroo and Lollapalooza. This new album, Proof of Life, is being called one of the best new albums of 2023. Well, we're calling it the ultimate musical library. Some of the people that are out there right now who you're still going to be talking about and listening to 15, 20 years from now. So if you can't buy everything, a couple of suggestions that you might want to look in and add to your, to your library are Desire, I Want to Turn Into You, Caroline Polachek, and Proof of Life. That's the fourth album for Joy Ola Dukin. The Ultimate Library with our Ultimate Musical Guide, David Herzrud. Thanks, David. Hey, have a great one and good listening. These days I wear my body like an uninvited guest. I turn it right and right and right instead of turning left. The boy of patience is a magic kind of medicine. Cause every spiral brings me back into your arms again. Said no regrets, cause you're my sunset fiery red. Forever fearless and in your arms. You can find full tracks, conversations, 
You can find full Fresh Tracks conversations, I should say, on our website. That's at sdpb.org slash music. Well, that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Mondays in the Moment. Matt Wiesner brings you an hour of summer with the symphony. We'll hear highlights from the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra's season recorded live from the Great Hall at the Washington Pavilion in Sioux Falls. If you can't tune in live to In the Moment, you can always subscribe to the In the Moment podcast. Find it on most podcasting platforms. Our producers are Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. Our engineering support this week came from Colton Nicholson. Jordan Henderson was our videographer. Kara Hetland is the In the Moment executive producer and director of journalism for SDPB. Josh Chilson is SDPB's news director. This week, we featured work from Lee Strubinger, Larry Rohr, and Zadia Abbott. I am your host, Lori Walsh. From all of us at STPB Radio, we thank you for listening.